Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Thank you all of you. It's good to see all of you. And as you can see, I will be unpacking the relationship between identity and justice seeking by looking at the experiences of gay Muslims. Not gay Muslims everywhere. I'm going to focus on gay Muslims in the UK, specifically the gay Muslims I met during my research for my doctorate, which I did here at King's, by the way, at the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. Now, the question of the attitude of Islam, or Muslims as you might prefer, to issues like gender equality and sexual diversity, this is a recurring theme in the media, especially in the West, and also in my native country, Malaysia, which is a Muslim-majority country. And you might have been paying attention to its most recent iteration in the news coverage of the protests by some Muslim parents in Birmingham about the teaching of reproductive and sex education in some of the primary schools there. Because the teaching of reproductive and sex education now is meant to be more inclusive of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, LGBTQ people. And there have been protests of that by some Muslim parents in Birmingham. It's been quite high profile. Now, the vast majority of media coverage on this in the UK, whether it's with the right-leaning newspapers or the left-leaning or in the broadcast media, I don't have time to go through all of it. I invite you to go through these news reports yourself. The vast majority of them frame this as a clash between religious values and equality and diversity, specifically of sexual orientation and gender identity. What happens in this framing, and I'm not saying that it's completely not to do with these issues, but other issues have become invisible. We don't hear, for example, about the anxieties of a lot of these Muslim parents of how the teaching of subjects like RSE and LGBTQ inclusion might be a strategy of counterterrorism specifically prevent, which is the most controversial arm of the British state's counterterrorism policies. Now, a policy like prevent is meant to address terrorism, but it's framed by something called fundamental British values, which is about respect for democracy, the rule of law, liberal values, mutual tolerance of others. But these values now frame a policy that's meant to address terrorism which is now affecting the way schools inspectors look at whether schools are being LGBTQ inclusive. So what's happening here is a complex causal connection between rolling out equality, inclusion, and diversity policies in schools and universities and counterterrorism policy. 
It amounts to, for example, a few years ago, the former education secretary saying, if a student exhibits homophobic attitudes, they, there's grounds to investigate them for radicalization, right? This kind of logic has differential impacts. We see a lot of coverage about the Muslim parents in Birmingham, for example, as, you know, quote unquote, potential threats to national security. But do we ever see this critique being applied to some prominent members of the Conservative Party, for example, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is an elite Englishman who also opposes same-sex marriage, LGBTQ inclusion, and abortion, but there's a differential impact. So this is something that has been left unsaid in a lot of this coverage. And let's not forget that prevent and a lot of counterterrorism policies are in place now in an environment where we know that law and order in the UK is racialized, is classed, is gendered. The stop and search policies of the police force time and time again have been shown to disproportionately affect young working class black men in the UK. And that's just a fact, right? So this is where these protests in Birmingham sit. And this is where the debate on religious values versus sexual identity are ignoring this larger context. And it's not just in more conservative-leaning outlets. So progressive writers such as Owen Jones, who writes for The Guardian, he's openly gay himself, and he identifies as a socialist. He's very outspoken about racism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, for example. Even he, when he addresses this issue in Birmingham, frames things in these terms, Muslims on one side and LGBTQ people on the other side need to work together. The assumption behind this, and it's a laudable aim, but the assumption behind this is they're naturally opposed anyway. They are distinct categories of identity. What happens to Muslim people who might be straight but might have an LGBTQ relative or best friend or partner and so on? What happens to LGBTQ people who might be Muslim themselves? What happens to them when the debate is framed in this way? So this will be the focus of my lecture today. I will be talking about how gay Muslims in the UK negotiate their identities and their quest for justice within this political context where law and order and policies on equality and diversity struggle against policies about counterterrorism and how this affects majorities and minorities differently in this country. I'm not just going to look at gay Muslims as people that these policies affect, people that these things are done to. I'm going to give you a flavor of what the gay Muslims I met do themselves, how they are active agents seeking social justice within this context. But I will leave you with some ideas about how this is complicated by so many things, how the political context itself keeps changing such that these struggles for justice and identity making have to be constantly renewed and renegotiated by gay Muslims. So maybe to bring this alive, I should tell you a story. So I'm going to share with you a story told to me by someone called Saleh. 
Now, Saleh is not his real name. I use pseudonyms for all the participants who were in my research. So, and I conducted my research. I'll tell you a bit more about it after I relate the story. So Saleh is male. He identifies as gay. He's British Arab. He's Muslim. When I interviewed him, this was a few years ago, he was in his late 20s, and he's a refugee. So when he was a teenager, he comes from somewhere in the Middle East. Um, his parents found out that he was gay. They found out that he had a boyfriend, and they threatened to kill him. And he was scared for his life, so he escaped from his home country. He took the land route through Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and then finally landed in the UK and sought asylum here, was granted it, and now he's a British citizen. And when I interviewed him, he was actually working full-time as a social worker with a local council in London Borough. And he was very proud of that. He was saying, this is what this country has given me, and this is how I'm contributing to the country that accepted my status as a refugee. I'm a social worker here. I'm doing good for Britain. Something happened to Saleh very soon after the July 7 bombings in 2005. This was a Friday. He'd taken time off work so that he could go for prayers, Friday prayers at the mosque. And he was wearing quite traditional-looking Arab clothing. Uh, and he was wearing a skull cap, and he had a beard, and he was walking around with a backpack which at that point looked suspicious to the police. So the police stopped him. They stopped and searched him, and they asked him, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to the mosque. And they said, what are you going to do at the mosque? And he said, well, it's Friday. I'm going to perform my Friday prayers. And they said, who are you going to meet at the mosque? And he looked at the policeman in the eye, and he said, I'm going to the mosque to meet my husband. And the police were surprised. Because at this point in his life, this was when civil partnerships became legal in the UK in the mid-2000s. So at this point, Saleh was in a civil partnership with another Muslim man, another gay Muslim man. And they were going to go from their workplaces to the mosque to pray together, have lunch, a bit of a lunch date, and then they were going to go back to work. Right? And according to Saleh, when he said this to the police, they couldn't compute. And he said he can prove it. He has to stop and search form that says, going to the mosque to meet his husband. But he felt very offended by that experience because he thought, you know, the police stopped me because I looked a certain way. And then when I told them what I was doing, they didn't believe me because I looked a certain way and I was going to a certain place. What is it about this country that allows me my freedom of sexuality, my freedom to be in a civil partnership, my freedom to be, in a, Mus to be a Muslim, to fail to make sense that I am all these things? Why the disbelief? So then there was a part two to this story. So after this experience, Saleh sort of was very bruised by it, left it behind. Sometime after that, a few months, couple of years, I can't really tell, um, because this was in an interview, he was telling me this. He said he went to South Hall. I don't know how many of you have been to South Hall. Um, he went there with a friend of his, another gay Muslim, but of Pakistani background. This friend is called Wakas. That's a pseudonym also. I also interviewed him for my research. So they went to South Hall just to have a fun day out. 
two gay Muslims, one Arab, one Pakistani, spending the day out in South Hall. What did they do? They started shopping for, and this is where the story gets a bit slippery. One of them told me we went shopping for a burqa, and the other one said we went shopping for a chador. I've tried to pin them down on this. I don't know what they're talking about because a burqa and a chador are two different things. A hijab is a head covering for Muslim women that exposes the face, right? That's the headwear. A chador is a cloak, that black cloak that a lot of Iranian women wear over their clothes when they go out. A burqa is this wire mesh thing that women in Afghanistan wear. You can't really find it outside of Afghanistan. So in Europe, when people talk about the burqa ban, they're talking about something that doesn't exist in Europe because this is what women wear in Afghanistan. What people usually mean by a burqa ban in the UK is they don't like the niqab, which is the face veil that some Muslim women wear to cover everything but their eyes. And that's the last picture. So I never knew what Saleh and Waqas were talking about because for them, these terms were interchangeable as well. Burqa, chador, niqab. Anyway, they go shopping. And Saleh is trying this stuff on in front of the Muslim shop sellers who are looking at him going, what are you doing? And he's like, no, no, it's okay. This is for my grandmother. We're the same size. I'm just trying it on for her. And then he buys the chador or the niqab or whatever it is. So they thought, ha, 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 we've done this. We've had a fun day out. At the tube station, Waqas says to him, put it on. Saleh's like, no, no, it's done now. The day's over. And Waqas is like, the day's not over. We've done this. We've got the stuff. You need to follow this through. You need to put it on. And Saleh was like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. And then he said to me, in that moment, he remembered this stop and search experience. And then finally said to Saleh, okay, I'll put it on. So he put on his gear and then got onto the tube. And they had a merry old time playing pranks on people. So Saleh met an American guy whom he thought was really cute and started flirting with him. And the guy couldn't see his face, so he was flirting with him, saying, um, it's okay, you know, if you become a Muslim, you can marry me as well, you know, because you can marry four wives. It's okay, I'll wait for you. He was doing all this stuff. And he said at some point, he saw this, you know, in his words, not my words, he said he saw this white English woman who looked really suspiciously at him and she looked really disgusted and he was like, oh, okay. So he goes and he sits beside her and he starts rocking back and forth and he starts chanting Arabic verses. Basically, it's the Shahada, the Muslim creed, La ilaha Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah. She doesn't understand what he's saying. He does this and he says she grows visibly more uncomfortable and finally he looks at her and he goes, boom! she jumps out of her seat and he starts allulating oh, la, 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 la. So, so he tells this story and both of them told me this story both of them were there Saleh and Wakas and they found it really hilarious I did as well but I've told this story to a few people since especially my non-Muslim English friends who get really uncomfortable with it. And I think for good reason, right? You're traveling on public transport, someone does this to you, it's really uncomfortable making. But think of it from Saleh's perspective. From his perspective, it's like, I've been got before, and whether it's cute or not, I'm going to get you now. That's his perspective. That's his experience as a gay Muslim in the UK. 
Now, this is one of the more colorful stories. I wish I could tell you more. Sadly, they're not all as colorful as this when I was doing my field work, but I met a few other people like Saleh. How did I meet them? Um, I did field work for a couple of years in Malaysia and the UK. I split my time between both countries because I wanted to compare the experiences of gay Muslims in Malaysia and the UK. So I did interviews with men and women in their 20s and 30s mostly who identified as gay and Muslim. And I used the word gay advisedly. I know it's very contested and I know language evolves now. And the kinds of pronouns we identify with are important, how we describe ourselves. So when I say gay Muslims, this is how mostly all of my participants describe themselves, whether they were men or women. I hung out with them, I did participant observation, I went to the mosque, um, I just went to their social activities, I interviewed them. My research is also based on my experiences because I identify as gay and Muslim myself. And before coming to the UK, in Malaysia, I you know, had a bit of a mixed career in the arts, in journalism, and in human rights activism. At one point, I was the director of the Malaysian chapter of Amnesty International. So when I came into academia, I brought these experiences with me, and they informed the questions that I wanted to ask in my research as well. So one of the things I devised, and how I met even more gay Muslims, was I decided that I didn't just want to take from my participants, I wanted to give something back to them. And a lot of them said that they were interested in my research, they were interested in what I was finding as a gay Muslim from Malaysia, how did I figure out issues to do with Islam and sexuality? So I devised a one-day workshop called Demystifying Sharia. It was free to attend, and I conducted it for whichever LGBTQ Muslim or their friends or allies wanted to attend. And that's how I met a few other people also. And also I've stayed in touch with quite a few of them since then. And um, here's quite a shameless plug. If you want to know more about my work, you can read my book, The Making of a Gay Muslim, Religion, Sexuality, and Identity in Malaysia and Britain. Um, if it's not in the King's Library, I would request that you find a way to make sure it's available in the King's Library. So the story I tell about Saleh, I tell it because I think it's interesting. It's funny. Um, it's borderline offensive, it's borderline dangerous, but I think it's really funny and it really speaks to the everyday experiences of a lot of the people I met, including me. But that's one kind of resistance. I'm going to move on now to demystifying Sharia and talk to you about another form of resistance and identity making that was part of my research. So what is demystifying Sharia? So first of all, a lot of the participants I met, the gay Muslims I met, especially here and in Malaysia as well, it's not that they didn't want to know about Islam. They did, but at some point in their lives, they started feeling less safe going into traditional Muslim spaces because the questions that they had were about being Muslim and gay, and they weren't confident of getting answers that were not judgmental in a lot of these spaces. So they wanted another space to ask these questions. Now, I had to clarify to them that I'm not an alim, I'm not a traditionally trained Muslim scholar, but I have done this research, so I have the secondary literature that I could put together for them so that they could then go on their own journeys and find out what they needed to. 
And so this is how demystifying Sharia was born in the UK. It was kind of a safe alternative space for people to ask these questions that they always had about their faith and their sexuality. So I utilized research that I was doing for my PhD, my experiences in Malaysia. And also in Malaysia, I was part of another NGO called Sisters in Islam, which is an Islamic feminist NGO that upholds the rights of Muslim women within the framework of Islamic legislation. And they used to run workshops for Muslim women in Malaysia as well. Because, you know, I'm going to put this a bit inelegantly, the Islamic laws in Malaysia, Muslim women get shafted by them a lot of the time because they're interpreted from a very patriarchal perspective. So what Sisters in Islam would do was look at the variety of interpretations on gender equality within Islam and deliver these rights to the Muslim women, whether it was domestic violence or divorce or child custody and inheritance and so on. So I borrowed that model and adapted it with my own research for a specifically LGBTQ Muslim audience. What is demystifying Sharia? In a nutshell, it's about undoing stereotypes about Sharia that are quite prevalent among Muslims and non-Muslims. Not everyone, but you know, this is a stereotype that's still prevalent. Sharia sometimes seems to be a catch-all term. And in some Muslim countries, you will see that they have laws that they call Sharia laws. The point of demystifying Sharia is to make this distinction between Sharia as a divine law, a religious law, and what happens when it gets interpreted as a state law. They are not the same thing because it goes through a human process of interpretation and application. And how it's funneled is through something called fiqh, which is jurisprudence which is something that early Muslim scholars would think, how do we apply stuff that's in the Quran to our actual situations around us, whether it's to do with what you do when you encounter people from a religion you've never known about? What do you do when you go into a new land and have to live in a certain way? How do these laws have to be adapted you know, to marriage and divorce and a whole host of other things, worship, you know, for example? So that's fiqh. And there is actually a lot of diversity in fiqh, in how the divine law is interpreted in different contexts and how it's, it makes its way into state laws in different Muslim countries. In fact, when fiqh is turned into state law, it gets reduced because states then have to choose the interpretation that, that is in the state's best interest rather than looking at the diversity of interpretations in fiqh, which is what it was like before the formation of the nation state. And evidence for this diversity is in the different schools of jurisprudence that exist in Islam, within Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. And you know, in relation to sexual diversity and gender equality, there's a kind of overall argument by some traditionalist Muslim institutions that say, well, all of them say homosexuality is wrong. Yes, but these were rulings that were devised centuries ago, possibly a thousand years ago, and how they decided that it was wrong was based on quite different premises. The different schools thought it was wrong for different reasons, and these reasons were not necessarily explicitly mentioned in the Quran. And the punishments that they imposed could be quite different based on these reasonings as well. Some of the punishments were very severe, death, 
some of the punishments were very mild. Someone even said no punishment if homosexuality doesn't cause public disorder, because that was the logic. Does homosexuality cause public disorder or not? So even though it's wrong, wrong across the board, there's a lot of open space to discuss why people thought it was wrong. Can we revise it? Can we recontextualize this reasoning for the present day? So in this workshop, it's not like I'm trying to impose one particular view on the Muslims who come to it, but I'm exposing them to ideas that they would never have heard otherwise. They wouldn't have known these things until they came to the workshop. And part of the workshop is also looking at the interpretive flexibility when we look at the sacred sources of Islam, like the Quran and the Hadith, and how they inform different principles of fiqh. So the workshop goes through this. It's like a whistle-stop tour of the construction of Islamic law. I won't do all of it with you today, but I just thought it would be useful for you to see what are some of the things we do, or I did, in relation to the Quran, for example, which Muslims believe is the literal word of God. Now, firstly, it comes as a surprise to a lot of my participants that the word homosexuality does not exist in the Quran. How could it? It was coined in the 19th century. The Quran is a 7th century text. For that reason, the word homosexuality does not exist in other ancient scriptures as well. Not the Old Testament, not the New Testament, not the Hebrew scriptures, and so on. What we do find in the Quran are verses like this, and Lut. So Lut in the Quran corresponds with the biblical patriarch Lot, who appears in the Hebrew scriptures. So, and Lut, remember when he said to his people, will you commit abominations such as no creature ever did before you? You come with lust to men instead of women. No, but you are immoral people. Now, a verse like this, again, is used to justify some interpretations of Islam, well, the majority of interpretations of Islam now, that you know, homosexuality is condemned. But it isn't clear exactly what are the boundaries of this definition just based on this verse. And a lot of the verses in the Quran are quite episodic like that. They're more of a vignette. They're not extended narratives like the one that you find about Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 of the book of Genesis. So you have all these mentions about abominations, men coming onto men, prophet loot, stop it, we're punishing you because of it. How this gets opened up in demystifying Sharia is we actually look at how this verse has been interpreted by Muslims throughout history. So there was a Muslim scholar in the 11th century, for example, he's called Ibn Hazm, and he was active in Andalusia, so what is now Spain and Portugal. So he said, actually, this verse is about a whole lot of other things. The sexual stuff is not the priority. The priority of this verse is to address the other sins committed in Sodom and Gomorrah such as highway robbery, arrogance, violence, xenophobia. Because the rape that was threatened by these men in the verse were against outsider men, men who were visiting that community. They were the ones that were threatened with rape. So Ibn Hazm has this interpretation of this verse. It's one amongst many, but it's there. 
And a lot of these interpretations, because these passages were so vignette-like, a lot of Muslims in that period were also looking at commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, especially when lots of Jews and Christians also converted to Islam and brought that kind of knowledge with them into this religion. But what we find in the Quran is, like I said, unlike an extended narrative that you find in the Hebrew scriptures, these episodes kind of coexist with other episodes. So the episode on Prophet Lut might be sandwiched by episodes about Noah and Moses. Very short things. So the Quranic narrative seems to be saying, remember all these stories? Remember these people who, obeyed, who disobeyed the divine command? It didn't matter what it was. Right? They just disobeyed it, they were unjust, and so on, and this was the punishment. Now we can talk about what punishment means, what your view of religious punishment is, and you know, that's a separate discussion, but that's the logic actually, the building blocks of how the exegesis of the scriptural text has been built over the centuries. So my question always to my participants is, you don't have to make up your minds now. You don't have to agree with any of this. But what does this say then about homosexuality in the here and now? When we're talking about loving relationships, when we're talking about LGBTQ people who suffer hate crimes, right? Who get beaten up, who in some countries go to jail, get imprisoned, get tortured. What do these verses say about this situation then? Now, opening up the question in this way is not enough. So my participants also ask, well, are there positive examples in the scriptures? And, you know, we talk about, you know, verses that could be said to address diversity and inclusion, such as this one. One of God's signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and your colors in which there are signs for those who know. Now, again, traditionally, this verse was interpreted as talking about linguistic and ethnic diversity. So no racism in Islam, no xenophobia. That's how it was um, interpreted. But some progressive Muslim scholars now say, well, why do we confine it to that? Tongues and colors. Doesn't the diversity of colors also mean a diversity in sexual dispositions, gender identity, different tongues? Do we not speak different languages of intimacy with each other? So why can this, this verse not be expanded to include these new contexts. But again, it's an open question. It's not, it's not for anyone to accept or reject. It's just a question. What happens when I introduce these questions is, so when I did the workshops, I would always have time for written feedback. And invariably, all the participants would write written feedback about the workshop because they found it really valuable. So for example, this one says, what went well was the open sharing of knowledge and experience simplified explanations of difficult concepts like fiqh, hadith, and many examples. So this is someone who came to the workshop once and went away with this. But some people came to the workshop and decided they would stay and forge connections with other LGBTQ Muslims. So how this workshop started as well was, I asked Iman, which is the LGBTQ Muslim organization here in London, I asked them, would you be interested in me sharing my research with you and so on? And they said, yes, absolutely, please do it. And this is how it got done. I did my workshop through Iman. And through this, Iman also had more members that it recruited. There are other LGBTQ Muslim organizations now in the UK, like Hidayah and so on. But at that time, it was mostly Iman. 
So people like this guy, Ibrahim, who I eventually interviewed as well, came to a workshop and said it changed his life. Because he said, it's really only been in like the last couple of years where I've been able to kind of come to terms with what the Quran says and think about it in a different way. He's talking about the workshop here. I, I don't have space to produce the whole transcript. And then he goes and does his own reading. So he reads a book called Homosexuality and Islam, which is written by an openly gay Muslim writer called Scott Siraj Al-Haq Kugel. And he does more of his own research and meets other queer Muslim friends. So this is the ripple effect that these workshops had. There were other things that were going on as well, but this was one of the ripple effects. And it went further. So after running the workshop for a couple of years, the LGBTQ Muslims I met through Iman felt confident enough that they wanted to cooperate with, quote unquote, a mainstream Muslim organization to do a joint conference together. And this is when we approached the Muslim Institute, which I'm a fellow of as well, to hold a joint conference on diversity in Islam. So it wasn't just about LGBTQ issues, although there was one specific panel on same-sex marriage. It was about a lot of other things as well. What do Muslims do about the refugee crisis and you know, so on and so forth. So it was a two-day workshop jointly organized by the Muslim Institute and Iman. Now the Muslim Institute before this had never worked with Iman, didn't know what they did, right? It was through me when I joined the Muslim Institute that I introduced this. The Muslim Institute is, um, is an educational charity set up in London in 1974, so it's been around for a while. And it's not huge because it works on a fellowship basis. It publishes materials like this. This is the second plug. This is a journal called Critical Muslim. It's published every three months. The latest issue is called Music. I've got an article in it. So I'm one of the editors of Critical Muslim, and I'm also a fellow of the Muslim Institute. And the Muslim Institute also has an annual lecture. It has conferences and so on. So organizing a conference with the Muslim Institute was the right fit. And a lot of people who came to speak at that conference were kind of nearly establishment figures in British Muslim academia and activism, speaking at a conference co-organized by this group of LGBTQ Muslims. So that's one of the things that came out of this engagement, the ripple effect. But there are always complications. That conference happened in 2014, and everyone who came to that conference felt so much hope. I had older Pakistani Muslim uncles coming to me, shaking my hand, saying, thank you, I've never heard anything like this before. Thank you for sharing your story with me. And then suddenly something like this happens. You might have heard of the massacre at this LGBT nightclub, Pulse, in Orlando, 2016, perpetrated by this guy, Omar Mateen, who, before he went on this rampage, pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. Right, at that point known as ISIS. So he supported ISIS and went on this murderous rampage in this LGBT nightclub. And you can imagine the news coverage that happened after that. I'm going to focus on two kinds of response to this event, because I think they illustrate some of the challenges that continue, continue up to the present day, even when we're talking about things like the Birmingham protests and experiences of people like Saleh and Wakas in the story I told you earlier. So this is the first response. It has now been confirmed by multiple sources that Omar Mateen, the shooter in the Orlando massacre, was himself gay. 
He frequently visited the same club that he committed the massacre in. So this is what we found out as well. He was on Grindr. He went to that club many, many times. And he attempted to initiate dates on a famous gay dating app. Yet the media continues to ask questions about radical Islam and about Islam's stance on homosexuality. What blatant hypocrisy. He wasn't a radical Muslim. He was a mentally deranged, psychopathic, American, closet, homosexual, who was battling with his sexual identity. The guy was mental, plain and simple. Islam's stance on homosexuality is irrelevant to this massacre, period. So complete distancing. And this was a quote by um, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, who's a Pakistani-American Islamic scholar, and it was quoted on a British Muslim website called Five Pillars. So just hold on to this, just digest it for a bit. I'm gonna juxtapose that against another quote. This time it's by Milos Yiannopoulos. You might be aware of him, he's an openly gay British guy of Greek extraction who once wrote for Breitbart and supported the presidency of Donald Trump. So he wrote, Western capitalist democracy gave women and gays equal footing in society. Islam has arrived to roll the clock back. The Christian right may not be totally down with homos. Sorry, I'm quoting him, not me. And Donald Trump may say things that hurt our delicate feelings, but they aren't going to kill us or put us in camps. Only Islam would do that. The same Islam that bizarrely now stands at the top of the left's hierarchy of victimhood. Furthermore, this isn't about radical Islam. This isn't a tiny fringe. In Britain, a 2009 Gallup survey found that not one Muslim believed that homosexual acts were acceptable. Not one. Events like this are tragedies. So first of all, a lot of the LGBTQ Muslims I knew were heartbroken and shattered by the Pulse Massacre. A lot of the cisgender, heterosexual Muslims I knew through that conference in 2014 were also distressed. But these experiences become invisible. It's as though they don't exist when you hear statements like this and the one before it. They are different. There are differences in Yasser Qadi's statement and Milos Yiannopoulos' statement. Let's not pretend that they're not different. Milos Yiannopoulos' statement is really about fingering Muslims as perpetual oppressors. There's no such thing as a good Muslim unless they have completely renounced Islam. That is Milos Yiannopoulos' position. So get rid of Islam and police Muslims. Islam is the villain. With Yasser Qadi, it's LGBTQ equality that becomes weaponized to produce Islamophobia. So he's saying, why are, you, why are you focusing on the Muslims? This has nothing to do with Islam. Our stance on LGBTQ issues is irrelevant. This guy was crazy. He was American. He was a closeted gay guy. He's your problem, not ours. So Muslims as victims, right? More than LGBTQ people. So there are differences in their rhetoric, but I would argue that they share some similarities as well. In both these kinds of positions, it is assumed that Islam and LGBT equality are non-negotiable. There's no middle ground. There's no different way to think about this. And furthermore, they prop up a very clash of civilizations thinking, right? For Milos Yiannopoulos, Islam will always be the enemy of the West. 
therefore it has to be vanquished. For Yasser Qadi, the West will always be perpetrators of Islamophobia. So we must always hold the West accountable. Again, it's very black and white, us and them thinking. And it produces this selective silencing of a whole other range of experiences of Muslims, whether they are LGBTQ or not. So what are the strategies? i just like to highlight the strategies that I think are at work, some examples of how this rhetoric has its force, even now, even when we talk about the Birmingham protests. So there can be silencing by complete denial, and I'm talking about silencing by both extremes of the argument, the very traditionalist Islamist and the very Islamophobic. I think they share these strategies. So first there's complete denial, I'll explain what that is in a minute. There's kind of partial acceptance, but there's always like a moral pivot that means that they revert to the argument. Again, I'll explain in a bit. And there's always the deflection. Never our fault, it's always someone else's fault, right? So what do I mean? What are some of the examples of this? So from one extreme, from a very traditionalist Islamist perspective, there are arguments like, why are we chatting about LGBTQ issues? There's no such thing as a gay Muslim, gay thing. This is a Western thing. What do we have to do with this? Right? And this has been actually uttered by Muslim heads of state and government, like the former president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. On the other side, you have commentators. You see them. I challenge you to pick up a copy of The Sun or The Daily Mail and just read it cover to cover. You come across comments like, there's no such thing as a progressive Muslim. All Muslims at some point are enemies of the West. Like, there's no way that Islam could ever be compatible with being Western or British. So that's complete denial. Moral qualification is more like, we'll accept you as long as you're not too much for us. So again, from this extreme of the argument, it's like, it's okay, we'll tolerate the gay people as long as they don't make claims that it's okay to be gay and Muslim, because once they do that, we have to reject them. From the other side, the argument is, it's okay, we'll tolerate Muslims, but Islam is still evil. So for us to accept Muslims, they have to not be too Muslim. Things like niqab, hijab, halal food, all this stuff, they have to forego this. And you can look at narratives in right-wing parties in you know, European states like France and Germany and the Netherlands and so on to see that this, this kind of argument carries a lot of force in those environments. And finally, there's deflection. It's not our fault. So again, from one side, it's like homophobia, transphobia, not our fault. It's all because of Western imperialism and Islamophobia. That's the problem. We're not the problem. From the other side, Islamophobia, not a problem. We're scared of Muslims only because of what they do to their people in their own countries. Look at all the beheadings. Look at all the honor killings. This is why. It's not Islamophobia. You can't be Islamophobic if you're scared of those things. So again, these are two extremes. I know they sound like caricatures, but I know for a fact that these kinds of storylines still permeate across the political sphere, right? And the problem with this last mode of silencing, deflection, is it often has kernels of truth. When one side critiques Western imperialism and Islamophobia, there is truth in that. This stuff happens. When the other side critiques Muslim governments for violating human rights, there is truth in that as well, right? It does happen. Look at Saudi Arabia, look at Iran. 
Look at Brunei. But where does this go if we're not self-reflective, if we're not bringing these things up in a spirit of dialogue and also admitting that, okay, there are gaps in where we stand as well, as well as where the other person stands. And for me, this is the question I'd like to leave you with, or a series of questions. I introduced to you a few stories and a few personal experiences before this. You heard Saleh's story. Um, you heard about some of the experiences of the participants in my Demystifying Sharia workshop. You've heard some quotes. Are gay Muslims always destined to be caught in the middle of these struggles? And not just gay Muslims, but people who see themselves as allies as gay Muslims. Is everyone like that doomed to constantly have to address this wider political narrative that never gets named, right? Will people like that always be forced to choose sides? Is it not possible to have hybrid identities? Is it not possible to be fully British, but the kind of British person that you don't normally see in the mainstream press or in primetime broadcasts? Is it possible to be a fully British gay Muslim or a Muslim who sees things in a different way? Or a non-Muslim British person, white middle-class background, who sees Islam in a different way? Is that possible? Or are we always doomed to choose sides in the debate on equality and diversity and inclusion? I've also shown you how a lot of the people I've met create alternative communities. I think Iman, Hidayah, are alternative communities for LGBTQ Muslims. There are other alternative Muslim communities emerging now as well. There's something called the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. Um, it's not LGBTQ specific, but it's inclusive and it's non-sectarian. So it's a kind of place where Sunnis and Shias and Muslims of other you know, schools can pray together. And this includes LGBTQ Muslims. There's a lot of gender equality that they uphold as well. The Muslim Institute, as I was telling you, kind of becomes an alternative Muslim community that exists outside of traditional Muslim spaces. So all that is happening. All that is flourishing. Do people know about it? I would submit to you that I don't think the general public in the UK knows that this stuff is happening among British Muslims because of this constant selective silencing. Because there's always this position that if you're a Muslim who has a criticism of equality and diversity, you must be a certain kind of Muslim, right? And if you want to uphold equality and diversity, then you must have a certain position on Islam. It's implicit. I don't think it's explicitly stated, but I think those are the implied parameters of the debate. And finally, what I'd like to leave you with is the bigger question of whether we can talk about identity and justice seeking, you know, LGBTQ inclusion in this country, Islamophobia, without having a critique of counter-terrorism policies. Because I think that is what is happening as well. Whenever we talk about equality and diversity and including the rights of religious minorities, the debate somehow swirls within this realm of, oh, it's about identity and values. What about counter-terrorism? What about prevent? What about anti-radicalization policies? What are they doing to the way we think of what it means to be British in a multicultural society and a diverse society? Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.